This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hey, For the Wild community, Ayana here. We're putting out a special invitation to all musicians who enjoy For the Wild's programming and would like to contribute. If you're a record label or a musician, we'd love to work with you to showcase your music on the program. If you think your music is a good fit, or you're even interested in creating something special for the show, you can submit your tracks at forthewild.world slash submit dash your dash tracks. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Carol Ruchtischel, a biologist, naturalist, environmental activist, and author. We, we depend on wild areas. We depend on the earth and, and, and its ecosystems, plants. I mean, just for survival, for our physical survival as well. Carol shot the hooch with President Jimmy Carter, documented new species of lizards in the North Georgia mountains, and discovered that sea turtles were dying by the tens of thousands along the Georgia coast. She has lived on Cumberland Island for over 40 years and was instrumental in the establishment of the Cumberland Island National Seashore and its ensuing wilderness designation. Ruckdeshell has fought a lifelong battle with families like the Carnegies, Rockefellers, and Candlers, who thought of Cumberland Island as their personal playground and summer retreat. Well, hello, Carol. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those of the long time for the wild listeners, when it was called Unlearn and Rewild, we did an interview with an author who wrote a book about you. So it's pretty incredible to now be speaking to you directly. And I'm really looking forward to diving into a conversation together. Well, I look forward to being part of it. Really flattered that <laughs> that uh, you you cared about a place like Cumberland Island. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. It's a small wilderness, but mm-hmm. it's uh, you know on the East Coast we don't have too much right. left. Right. So it makes it that much more important. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'd like to introduce listeners to Cumberland Island and why it is such an important place. And I wonder if you could share with us the sounds, smells, and experiences of Cumberland so listeners can ground themselves in the island's flora and fauna. And I know this small island is home to over 20 distinct ecological communities, from salt marshes and maritime forests to coastal beaches. So perhaps you could transport us to an area you are the fondest of. I'm particularly fond of freshwater wetlands, as as counterintuitive as it may seem, being right there on the ocean. Usually in with biologists, there's pretty much a division in marine and terrestrial or freshwater. Uh, so even though I've been on the island and worked with marine animals, the sea turtles and dead marine animals, uh, my fondness is really for the freshwater wetlands of the island. Um, but for most people, of course, it would be the, the, the rhythmic churn of the ocean and lapping against the shore and the shorebird screaming. And, um, but inland, it's, it's just as beautiful with uh, frogs singing and a lot of water, freshwater birds and alligators and, and turtles. And uh, so that, those, are, those are my favorite places. Hmm. That sounds amazing. And yeah, because of Cumberland's incredible biological diversity, it is home to many rare and endangered kin. Bobcats and coyotes roam on the land, bald eagles, American oyster catchers, piping plovers, and least terns soar above. And the waters hold American alligators, green sea turtles, and right whales, many of which are endangered. So having spent the last 40 years on the island, I wonder if you could share some stories of kinship you've experienced with the native wildlife. Well, I'm not really a people person, so it it just seems natural or comes natural that I form <laughs> uh, more lasting impressions with the animals of the island. Um, yes, alligators are particular favorites of mine, as are sea turtles. The bobcats uh, were introduced, uh, the ones that are there now, they had died out on all the islands. And, but the park reintroduced or introduced bobcats. And uh, also a lot of new things like the coyotes and armadillos and things that appeared after I came. So it's a sort, it's never cha- ever changing, which makes it never a dull moment over there. Just when you think you got all the players lined up and you can really look at the ecology, then there's a new one arrives and <laughs> throws everything in a spin again got to got to plug in a new new member so that's kept it interesting mm-hmm. yeah and what is the you know with all of this biodiversity i wonder what the topography is like how, you know how does the island shift from different ecotones and um yeah if you could just kind of take us through a visual visualization of what you see there and and yeah, the, the smells and how it feels. Sure, it's uh, the island was is is not was not just made in one fell swoop. So 
it, it was made over over a long period of time. And so there are differing the t- topography is is significant in places. There are there are pretty pretty serious hills in the middle, and which were of course at one time dunes, and and then less so in the in the middle in the older portions where it's leveled off and they they farm the land, which there's not too much sign of that left. I mean, indirectly for an ecologist there is because of the vegetation, but but for the average person, there are trees on what were old fields now. And uh, then the wetlands, of course, the newer, some newer additions along the paralleling the beach are freshwater sloughs in between ridges. And there are several of those, I mean, side by side, which make sloughs and hold freshwater and are very exciting, much younger topography than the old hills and flatland in the middle. And then on the other side of the island, the west side, why we've got the salt marsh. And that's a vast level plain for the most part, of course, as everybody knows. but and, and a totally different ecosystem than, than any others. So it's 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 really it's an exciting place if you're a biologist because you have your choice of so many different habitat types. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds absolutely magical. And you've spent most of your life gathering research on sea turtles across the island, spending time with thousands of leatherback, green, and loggerhead turtles all of which are endangered. And their potential extinction feels especially important to mention because these kin are some of the oldest animal species on the planet, dating back over 200 million years. Yet it has only taken a few decades for us to decimate their populations. How is sea turtle nesting faring currently on the island? Yes, it's really, it's really been, uh, uh, pleasure seeing the numbers of nests go up. When I first came, I don't think a single nest survived. I mean, I'd, I'd see them and mark them and go out, and every day they were all gone. And that was because the island was overrun with hogs. And there was, I'd say there was not a square yard inland that wasn't rooted up by hogs. They were just everywhere. And of course, the the island people couldn't well, they would never try to control them, but still, uh, populations, of course, especially on islands, cycle quite a bit. And at times of high hog populations, I mean, they were very, very abundant. So they they put a lot of pressure on the sea turtles. And that was true on, on most of our barrier, our Georgia barrier islands. And with the park since the park service has come they've since got a person that that who's one of his primary duties is just to to keep the hogs under control so they don't do that eat all the nests and they certainly don't they've been and that that attempt has been very successful and and the conservation the cons- other conservation uh, of just Besides getting rid of the hogs or controlling the hogs, I, apparently you can't get rid of them, but uh, controlling them has been, I, I would guess, the most important thing for the, for the sea turtles on, on all the Georgia islands. Hmm. Well, it's good to hear that you're seeing more nesting and 
Yeah, I, I'm thinking about um, that it was in 1976 you moved into your home on Cumberland Island that you rebuilt with scavenged wood and have since led a life that has led you to be profiled as, quote, the wildest woman in the United States. And I'd like to ask you about this notion of wildness or perhaps your ethos of wild and what this has meant to you especially growing up during a time when gender norms for women were incredibly rigid. So can you speak to the importance of reinstating our feralness, especially in a society that attempts to breed the love of the wild out of us from a very early age? Yes, and I, yes and no. Uh, by, by that, I mean, I can certainly speak to it because I've always said um, I mean I know about feminism and all that and I've never felt like I really understood that and, and and I think part of the reason was is that that I kind of didn't walk on the main path I was off in the woods always so I never really ran into any obstacles that say you can't do this because I tried to do what I tried to do was away from everybody so nobody there was nobody uh, stopping me or trying to stop me, or I had no real model. I just knew what I loved. And so I just went and did what I, what I pleased. Um, unlike people that have to fight to do, if I wanted to be a telephone lineman, for example, I know I would, I know at that time I would have run into trouble. Now maybe people have cleared the way and you could do, a woman could do that. But when I did it, all I wanted to do was get away from people and get out in the woods and why because it was just I really I really can't explain why it was just that there was never any other way because I didn't kind of didn't fit into to what I saw as the norm uh, of, of our society at least at that time much better now mm -hmm. yeah I can relate to some of those pieces and I'm wondering yeah, if you, I'm just thinking about um, the gender dynamics coming of age in the 50s and 60s and the independence you found in rebuking dominant culture's expectations. Like, so you were, you know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine you back then when you were moving to Cumberland Island and saying, you know, I'm going. <laughs> and um, just the, the courage that that may have taken at that point. Oh, yeah. Well, I was terribly excited. And I'd been there. I'd been there with one of my professors a couple times. And I and so I knew it from one aspect. And I always thought I'd end up in the mountains where it's cool and the hills and, and everything. And that was just sort of a, a without thinking where I was going. Uh, I mean, I figured I'd end up there. And then when the when the the thought of the going to Cumberland, it was like, oh wow, am I sure I can handle this? You know, being on an island and and in the hot, and I would thinking I'd be up in the mountains and and but after visiting it a time or two, of course, I fell in love with it, and I realized that it's every bit as wild and there's every bit as much to learn there as there is anywhere, and uh, that's that's the kind of thing that keeps me going is just learning new things and. Uh, about any kind of natural things, about natural systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many stories have been told about 
your lifestyle on Cumberland. And what this leads me to really think about is how the love of land and place changes you. It can call you into a certain type of fearlessness or remembrance that there are ways of being that exist outside of how we are instructed to live. And I know many listeners probably struggle with the mentality of feeling stuck within their rigid, industrialized lifestyle, but the life you've carved out on Cumberland is a testament to the reality that you can create something else. So what initially attracted you to Cumberland and how have you created this fruitful life within the margins? I guess the main thing that, that attracted me to it was it became available. <laughs> and and I saw a job, I could take a job there and move there and have a place to live. And I had to work, but work is not an issue. I, I'm happy to work. And and so it was just it was just wonderful. And and it it turned out it was for three years, and that was adequate time for me to realize that yes. There are enough questions here to be answered to keep me happy the rest of my life. And basically, that's what it was about. I mean, besides loving the place and the, and the wildness of it, I mean, it's far from pristine wild. It's just there aren't many people. And that's, that's what I found very pleasant. Being here with you is like keeping my eyes open in the salty wind on the prow of a fast boat. Staying wide awake, letting worlds and hearts break Staggering through my fields with the radio off Well, this city makes me crazy It's a midden heap of old bones and harsh opinions All the money and the shame And the pulsing airless metro Burns under these streets like so many ravaged arteries and veins Ancient monuments to a terrifying God You fought a bar fight beneath a glowing cathedral Oh, the altitudes and angles Gilded angels, tombs, heads rolling Panties flashing in the dense and sweaty bra Being here with you is like keeping my eyes open In the salty wind on the prow of a fast Hearts break, staggering through my fields with the radio off. In 1955, the National Park Service recognized Cumberland Island as one of the most significant natural areas in the U.S., and by 1972, Cumberland Island was designated as Cumberland Island National Seashore, a unit of the National Park Service. But in preparing for our conversation, I was reminded that only 5% of the United States is protected wilderness, and only 2.7% of that is located in the contiguous United States. The rest is up in Alaska which is a painful reminder of how little wilderness remains and why it is so vital for us to stand for wild places across this country. 
So currently, how much of Cumberland is protected under wilderness designation, and what are the shortcomings of that designation? Well, well over half of the island was initially congressionally designated as wilderness. Uh, unfortunately, local special interest groups uh, removed some of that uh, so that they could drive commercial tours and things like that, which is pretty sad for the general public for that to happen and for anybody to kind of unilaterally do that. But it happened. Nevertheless, as we know, things happen. And uh, so the north end, the beach, and the main road was taken out of wilderness so people could drive commercial tours around the island. Uh, it happened in a, in a really deceitful way. It was a, a rider tacked on to an omnibus bill in 2004 and by a local congressman, which had been bought and paid for. So that's what happened. Now, the only good thing there is that I've been told, I'm not really a political person, too political, but uh, I've been told that changing an act of Congress is not hard if you just want to totally repeal it. But if you want to change it, then that presents a problem. But if you want to repeal it, all you need is congressmen to introduce it, if, if they would support that. So we're all hoping that we can get the wilderness put back together and taken away from special interests. And then it'll be intact again and the beach will all be back in and, and, and uh, the north end and the main road, which will make for a much better longer term preservation as it is now. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, well, it's been a mockery of wilderness really. Uh, so that's kind of sad. But right now there's also, or maybe, maybe, I mean, the chances of changing it are looking better and better, let's put it that way, of getting it back, putting it back together. Hmm. Well, that's good to hear. And, you know, I was reading something about this, quote, potential wilderness. And what does that mean for a place like Cumberland? Well, I think all wildernesses, go, when they're established, go through that. There are areas with non-conforming use, like such as retained rights and things like that, um, that, that they just, what well, all that means is when goes back, all goes back to the, the original owner, the government, then it, can, then it can be wilderness, but it also takes another act of Congress to put it in wilderness. That's what I've been told. So even though there may be a few places that could be put back in, it may be, I don't know the reasoning behind it, but I was always put off when I asked about it. That's the park service about it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so complex and nuanced land designations yes. and management and um, yeah. Yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. I, I hear that. Um, you know, you had mentioned something about tourism just a moment ago and Cumberland has long had a history of being the playgrounds for wealthy families like the Carnegies, Rockefellers, and Candlers. And currently, the Carnegie family owns a commercial hotel called the Grayfield Inn, where guests can stay and be driven around the island's wilderness. And I mention this because tourism is still peddled as an alternative to extractive industry. But Cumberland proves to be another example of the inherent exploitation that takes place 
when people seek to make the wild profitable. So can you speak to what occurred on Cumberland when private interest sought to fragment designated wilderness for the purpose of allowing vehicle tours? And how was this one of the most substantial removals and fragmentation of wilderness in U.S. history? Well, it's really sad and it probably comes, well, maybe not. Y'all are more used to uh, how we, we, we being our society, our culture works nowadays with all with big money running everything and more so every year, it seems like. But that's what's happened to Cumberland. I mean, it, it's pretty shocking to see the, the concessions made, uh, the concessions for, that were for the American people. And then they're now they're made to, the, to other people for other reasons to make money. And that's really disheartening. I mean, I don't know how to fight, fight that kind of thing. Uh, I know those people and, and, and individually, they're mostly very nice people. And, and, but, but it's just, uh, I don't know. And, and, and I'm not rich, so I, I can't see it from their standpoint. I think that's what it would take, but, but I understand that, it, that it's fact. <laughs> I've accepted that, it's, it's definitely fact that they uh, influence the management of Cumberland Island. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so maybe you could also explain how the tourism is impacting the wilderness and yeah, kind of give us a visual of this fragmentation because I think for many of us growing up with national parks, um, there's roads and honestly national forests and national, you know, all sorts of public land and BLM. There's roads cutting through, dirt roads, roads for ATVs. Um, so I'd really be interested to hear, I guess it's kind of a two-part, two-parter, one about this fragmentation of wilderness and how that disrupts a place. And then we could kind of get into the impacts of tourism. Um, and they're not necessarily one and the same. Well, it's particularly important on Cumberland because there's one road going from north to south that is called the main road and it's there are other side roads that were trails or were maintained when there were old fields uh, or people were running hog traps or whatever that are just there there's no pavement over there understand it's all they're all dirt roads but the main road there's so much traffic now that it's graded half of the way by the by by, by a big machine the park service has um, because there's a lot of traffic on the south end between where the visitors come over and especially Plum Orchard, a big house about midway. Um, but the, the main road was taken out of wilderness, obviously, so they could drive their commercial tours. And the, as I explained, that goes right up north, south to north on the main divides the island in two pieces. So really there's a, there's a Cumberland Island Wilderness West, Cumberland Island Wilderness East. And then they took out the whole North End because there's a, a little church up there. And unfortunately that's the only possible destination for most people because most people aren't interested in, in just a little view or a salt marsh or looking at birds, they want to see something human connected. And so a little church and a little settlement up there that was designed by, by folks to, to uh, help 
the hotel that was operating up there in the turn of the century. Uh, so you have that, and then the, the, the commercial tours that now can go from the south end up to the north end, drive around the north end, and go out the, the, the nice way back is on the beach, so people can see the beach. And so then they had to take the beach out of wilderness. So you can see the big circuit, the driving circuit. That's particularly devastating for the wilderness. And also in the, in the legislation that removed those areas, they mandated that the park run bus tours to the north end. Uh, and those now, they, they've been shut down because of COVID, but they will resume. And that's devastating for somebody hiking up there. And also taking the road out of wilderness allows bicycles to be up there. So people are have buses driving by them, bicyclists riding. And, and I've heard so many complaints. I mean, it's really, it shatters people's experience to be passed by a bike or a bus. Um, there are also island people that have the right to drive there because they're going and coming, but they rarely do it. It's like, I try to explain to people, it's like in your neighborhoods, you don't drive all the roads. You have your little road to get to the grocery store or wherever you're going, and that's about it. And that's how it is on the island. Most island people aren't driving up and down the island all the time. Or, you know, they'd rather not because of fuel. <laughs> and But bus tours going up twice a day, is that, that, that's pretty devastating. Yeah, it's so important for us, especially us as listeners, to consider the impact of visiting places and how we can connect to the wild that is left and also take care of these places. It's a conundrum, you know, it's, um, it's really challenging to interact and engage and not disrupt even more. And yeah, I definitely don't have the answers for that at the moment. And maybe they're never fully will be um it's so hard because we live such industrialized technologically forward lives at this point especially in the united states so it's like when we're engaging or interacting with these places we're not doing so in a really gentle way you know we're using machines that are cars we're we're bringing in so much with us. Um, and so I, I think that also makes things challenging, all of our modern needs as humans and how much we carry with us into these places and leave behind because of that. So um, yeah, and just our needs for access and it's it's complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. Yeah, it's but and it's particularly sad that if, if the administering agency is not tuned or supportive of wilderness, it's even worse. For example, I had people come and tell me that they were camped at the northernmost campground on Cumberland Island, and it was dark, and somebody came up with a flashlight and said, warned them that there was a, a, a particularly heavy rainstorm coming and would they be all right. Now, they were in the wilderness camping, understand, and somebody drove up and hiked in and, and to tell them that, and they were really offended, and rightly so. I mean, they said, oh, of course not, we're going to stay, and it was just a heavy rainstorm. 
but that's that sort of thing i don't know I, I mean that's i don't know how to fight that kind of thing that the people that go and have experiences like that just need to, to advertise those experiences for other people. And so the Park Service will take heed and realize that people really do want to be alone. I mean, that's, that's a, <laughs> that should be a God-given right. <laughs> we all need it, I think, some of us more than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think there is a need for quiet and reflection and some of us, um, you know, have more access to it than others as well. And, and um, how we're able to find that source of connection, even when we don't get to be in the wilderness, I think is going to be one of our deep inquiries as we move deeper and deeper into the Anthropocene and climate change and who knows what else is coming for us. So, yeah, this, this deep inquiry of, finding that type of quiet spaciousness in an increasingly noisy world. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and the the, the two things about wilderness that people always ask about, you know, why is it significant and all that, like you're just saying, it's so important to our well-being, our physical, mental well-being to know it's there, but, but it is physical and mental. In other words, those people that were passed by buses and bicycles when they presumed they were hiking in the wilderness, which they were, it's just that it was on each side of the road and it's not the road, um, were, were devastated and their experience ruined. But also physically, um, we, we depend on wild areas. We depend on the earth and, and, and its ecosystems, plants, I mean, just for survival, for our physical survival as well. And that seems to be forgotten because we can, because of artificial fertilizer, and that means we can make um, hundreds of thousands of more people than would normal, the earth would normally sustain, and, and that sort of thing. Um, we forget that it is physical as well as mental or spiritual or whatever you call it, I think.
Well, yeah, threats have long loomed over the island, ranging from development to extraction, but currently you're facing a battle against the development of Spaceport Camden. Can you begin by explaining what Spaceport Camden is and what threat it poses? What is the risk of exploding rockets in terms of all inhabitants of Cumberland? Well, I've, I've gone through many NEPA reviews and comments on various aspects of things in the island and everything, but the, the one for the spaceport, uh, which is immediately opposite the north end of the island on the mainland, uh, with intervening salt marsh, and then, of course, rockets will have to go over the salt marsh and waterways and then over the island to be even over the ocean. Uh, that was, was uh, uh, I don't know how to put it. It's just that I could hardly understand it. In other words, in that first environmental uh, impact statement they did for the, the rocket launch, they just said, oh, campers. Oh, yes, that would be a problem. Okay, we'll just call them authorized people and they can stay. Oh, somebody living on Cumberland? The rockets, which of course are going to go directly over my house. Um, oh, well, we can't, it's illegal, see, they know that, to, to say I have to leave every time they shoot a rocket because this is for a private enterprise and that would be a taking and you can't just take somebody's property for that. So they can't make me leave. And so they just would call me an authorized person, which to me meant, I was sacrificial, I, it was fine, I, they could do without me. And, and, and how that got by our NEPA people, uh, but even worse now, and maybe I'm getting this too confusing, but even now, NEPA has been emasculated so that they don't even have to have public input. For example, back when that big, big, four-inch, five-inch EIS statement came out, uh, they were going to use medium to large size rockets. That's what they were planning to launch. And they had a certain failure rate, this and everything, which was apparently uh, acceptable to most people. But now, since they received so much, that, was, that brought so much controversy that they, they've decided to go only with smaller rockets, which have my understanding, a 10 times greater failure rate. Well, <laughs> would you rather have more small ones or one big one? I guess that's what it amounts to. But, but now the bad thing is they do not have to have any public input on, the, on that change because of something the present political administration put in NEPA, just, just emasculated NEPA, which is the uh, Environmental Protection Act. So we're really, we, meaning the U.S. public, really in a bad situation here. And not being political, I can't suggest a way out except for people to get involved and, and, and learn about what's going on. And, of course, there's a, there's a, a good website, No Rockets Over Wilderness, which I will explain all the details of that. And... It, it, it just seems preposterous, and yet it's real. It's like reading something in science fiction. It's to me, especially because I'm right directly in the line of fire 
or under the line of fire. But also, <laughs> one more little little tidbit is that uh, less than eight miles to the south of where we're launching these rockets, and you, in other words, you can stand on the shore and see where they're going to launch them and look down and see big buildings, and that's where we store nuclear warheads from Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base. So there's just not a lot that adds up for me. I'm a kind of common sense type person and, and have trouble when things are so illogical. I just really, really don't know how to even think about it. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but, the, but they, the answer is for, is for people to get involved. I mean, I've been screaming so long that I'm stale. You know, they don't want to hear. They just look at me and go, oh, no, here she comes again. <laughs> so you really need, need fresh people, new people uh, mm -hmm. out beating drums. Absolutely. I, I'm all for that. And oh, yeah, the NEPA process being gutted is part of me wants to say it's shocking, but it's not with how this country is governed. But it's something that we all really need to be concerned about and need to look into um, because it's taking away our voice when it comes to managing our land and you know it's a huge deal for those of us honestly for everybody but especially for those of us who love the land and don't want to see more disruption and resource extraction and poisoning and stealing of the last bits of fresh water for more extraction for what you know for 99 cent store crap like for what what are we doing this for it's insane just thinking exactly. about the, the the chain of what all of this resource extraction and all of this development leads to it just leads to more crap that we throw away in landfills halfway around the world it's not for anything valuable and um and so it's yeah it's it's just it's <laughs> killing the earth to create trash. I mean, it's really insane. So, um, yes. It is. But, <laughs> but, you. but, you know, the root of it all, the elephant in the room that no one will speak of is why. And it's because we can, because we have artificial fertilizers, because we can feed more and more and more. And sustainability is not in much, many of our vocabularies any longer. It's growth, growth, growth. And that's not sustainable. I hate to use the same word, but it's not. I mean, we no, just can't keep not. doing it. We can't. No. We're not. They're not meant. We're like rats in a cage. It's I mean, an addiction. The, 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 it's a. It's, it's been a, done. It's been right. tested, and you just can only put so many rats in a cage, and the planet's a cage. Mm. Well, I think there's an addiction to growth and consumption, and um, and yeah, breaking that addiction and. And realizing that this addiction is creating spiritual bankruptcy in us and that this is a really a question about um, a spiritual reckoning of coming back home uh, to ourselves and to this earth and and yeah but anyways I'm I could go down this existential rabbit hole for hours um, but I do want to get back to the spaceport Camden and it seems like supporter, supporters of Spaceport Camden argue that 
The project would bring in hundreds of high-paying aerospace jobs to rural Georgia, which is somewhat of a fallacy seeing as other projects have been unable to procure these results. But regardless, this highlights the intricacies and increasing threat rural wilderness faces as the capitalist economy continues to decline. So I'd just like to explore this topic with you a bit further in terms of what bolstering rural economies means for wilderness preservation and how you define true natural resources. Oh, wow. Well, uh, it's for, for one, well, I know that there's a, a you, <laughs> stop it, Carol. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Um, it's, it's, it's very true that, that, the the mainland opposite Cumberland is fairly undeveloped. It's there's a, the one the the place opposite the south end is becoming more and more developed, getting houses. In other words, the view from the island looking toward the mainland used to be just natural, and and it's no longer that. If you see houses, well, Camden County and most Georgia counties put very little value. On any, on any natural features. They just don't see the value. Why do people want to come to Camden County? Right now, it's because it's not so highly developed. And yet it's only natural, according to our culture today, the people that work there in the Chamber of Commerce and all that want more and more and more development for more and more and more people. But they they're missing they're missing the big part of it. They don't realize why people come to Cumberland. Even uh, I mean, they keep wanting to raise the, the the limit of people that can come to the island. The park does, and and uh, that that ruin everything. Just like the opposite land opposite it, the park should be fighting, and I think they are against the spaceport because it's gonna it's gonna not because so much of, of of the few jobs it's going to create, which I understand is simply a few jobs, um, it, it, it's it's because we don't need those that kind of of uh, development, if you will. I mean, not only is it a threat to the nu our nuclear resources, for crying out loud, but to the island and the whole area. Uh, we've just got to get a better a better uh, appreciation for undeveloped land and maybe that's what you mean by wilderness of course it's not wilderness over there there used to be big signs along the place where they've got the where they're going to develop the spaceport or propose to develop it uh saying what did it say uh danger unexploded ordinance well whoa what does that mean well the big dow chemical and and other companies uh can't think of the other one. Glycol. Uh, there are hazardous chemicals. It's a it's a hazmat site over there, and munitions all over there under the ground in places. And yet we're that's where we're going to put this. And how are they going? And they're not no proposal to clean it up that I've ever heard of. Uh, so what does that mean to the waterways? And on it, there are just so very many questions. Uh, that that are unanswered and and it's just in this big push to to presumably bring more money into Camden County which 
may or may, may or may not happen if everything went right. So far, everything's gone wrong, and we, me, a taxpayer, they're paying. We're paying the bills. What eight million, seven or eight million? They've already spent trying to do this, and and nothing's been done. I don't know. Rider falling down from thirst. What passion must be keeping him alive? The sand is humming hymns in the great white wind. The sand is humming hymns in the great white wind. He lays his bridle upon the dunes, for a truism might fly from the horse's mouth. Does he love really, really and true? Well, in 2018, the Federal Aviation Administration received over 15,000 public comments opposing the project, yet the FAA decided to move forward with the project without any additional opportunity for public comment. I understand that the FAA will issue its final decision for the launch site in March of 2021, just a few months away. So for listeners who recognize the incredible importance of this decision, what can they do? Without a public comment period, what can be done? Well, they can go to that site I told you about, No Rockets Over Wilderness, that website, and uh, there's a place there to that easy, easily send letters and things like that and, and become familiar with what's going on. That's about the best thing. I mean, until they could come out with a, 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 an EA, I guess, environmental assessment, even then, that doesn't mean anything because there's no public comment will be uh, allowed, but unless there can be something done between now and then, who knows? I don't know. I'm not a, that political to know whether anything could be or not. Write to our senators, write to Georgia. Georgia, the state supports it, uh, of course. I mean, Georgia's known to be a, a red state, and uh, they... But 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 enough letters could change people's people's opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Carol, I hope this conversation has reminded our listeners that there are folks whose homes are entire ecosystems and the launching of rockets across the island of Cumberland is no different than if someone were to launch rockets within one's bedroom. So as we come to a close, I'd like to ask you about what you've witnessed and the trends you've noticed because you've committed yourself to one small bioregion since the 70s. What do you wish others would take stock of or just any reflections you wish to close with? 
Yeah, I've thought a lot about it because I've fought for what I thought was right in protecting the island for so long. And I don't feel like I made much progress. Uh, and, and why? Okay, I ask myself, why is that? And partially, I think it's because of a shifting baseline. And by that, I mean uh, one, one group of public officials, Park Service are running Cumberland now, uh, another group for them and so on back. But every time one new group comes in, they take stock of things and that's their baseline. So it, it, it just by natural uh, over time, that facilitates ecological degradation because you're always starting from a lesser point, a lesser point, a lesser point. I mean, at one time there were X number of cars. Now there are XX number of cars. At one time there were no bicycles. Now there's bicycles everywhere uh, and, and so on. And, and the people just accept that. The new people coming in because that's the way it is. So that's a big danger. And what that means is that the public has always got to keep, try to keep tabs on what's going on and don't consider what they see as locked in stone. They can change it if they will write letters. Uh, mostly if you have a good time and you leave, you don't think about you know anything. But if you have a bad, bad time, you'll write a letter. Well, it's also good to say, wow, I walked all the way to the north end of Cumberland and I didn't see a vehicle. Thank you, Park Service. Something like that, a positive to try to reinforce it because they don't hear the positive side of things. I mean, they have done a lot of good things right now. There's still a lot of bad things lined up to be done, such as fire management uh, and feral animals, but they've done a lot of good things. They did round up the cattle that were, were on the island. Uh, so, but, but again, it's the public that is going to have to keep tabs on whatever agency it is, because just by nature, the government agencies do not like wilderness. And uh, that's Fish and Wildlife, that's Forest Service, BLM, and National Park Service. So the public has really got to hold them responsible. And without that, without that, I mean, all the groups can do a lot, but they they don't they're nothing like the public if there's a public outcry which makes what you're doing so important i think thank you yeah well this has been a really just yeah i'm just thinking so much about this place and it's been so wonderful to spend this time with you and put myself across the country and into a whole other ecosystem and land that is in need of care, like all of the places that so many of us who are listening love and um, to be allies with one another as we fight for these places feels important. So Carol, thank you so much for this time that we've spent together and uh, I will be keeping up and keeping tabs on what's happening at Cumberland. Thank you, Ayanna. I really appreciate it. I think you're doing a wonderful thing.
Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Eliza Edens, Kezia Nagata, Lauren Allegre, and I, Good Friend. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Melanie Younger.